Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. Uh, the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. All right, today we're going to look at two characters, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, who didn't have the courage to do what God asked them to do and the devastating consequences they suffered as a result. Uh, this is a story about a husband and a wife who tried to deceive God and the people in their church. Uh, they lied to God and the people in their church and the consequences for their dishonesty was severe. In the research I've done, I've found that generally every human being, at least from time to time, has this sense of being dishonest. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking about is how many opportunities there are in a day to be dishonest. Like every uh, phone call, every conversation, every interaction, we have dozens and dozens of opportunities to be dishonest. A sociologist actually tell us that we either lie or hear someone lie to us over 300 times per day. It was actually 200. I just wanted to show you how easy it is to lie. All right, so let's read the story in Acts 4, starting in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Now you can imagine that the people gathered there at this point are thinking, please tell the truth, please tell the truth. Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, of course, this is not about how much they gave or what they gave. 
or how much they kept for themselves. Uh, here's what's happening in this story. The church that has experienced new life in Jesus Christ is being formed and lives are being changed. People are being spiritually transformed. People who were disconnected to God are getting connected to, to God in this dynamic community of faith. People who used to hate each other are becoming one, like walls of hostility and social, economic, and cultural barriers are being broken down every day. One of the most amazing things is that people, normally uh, ordinary people who are greedy, you know, possessive people, start to see people who are in need. And as their minds are being transformed, they take the stuff that belongs to them and they sell it and they give it away in Jesus' name. And the community is amazed by this. People look at this behavior and they think, wow, wow. Luke tells us about Barnabas, who we looked at last week. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas takes a field and just gives it away. He sells it, gives the money to be used for whoever needs it. And the apostles are so grateful for that that they say, we need to express gratitude. So they say, the name Joseph doesn't cut it anymore. We want to give you a new name. We're going to call you Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because you've brought so much joy to us. And this is such a good thing. But then a bad thing happens. Ananias and Sapphira see what's going on. And to them, it doesn't bring joy. They become resentful because they're not the ones who are receiving the praise. They think we want people to say wow about us. We want the disciples to change our names. We want to have that kind of praise and honor. They didn't long to become generous people. They longed to be known as generous people. They thought we would like to have a reputation for spiritual greatness. They weren't interested in building their character. They were interested in building their reputation. And so this kind of self-centeredness of Ananias and Sapphira became a great danger in the first church. And it's been a danger ever since. And what happens is some people become self-centered in their spiritual life because of their search for significance. A guy named Harold Kirshner, uh, he writes about a young Stanford pre-med student. Uh, this kid is competitive and driven. His parents want him to relax, so they send him out east on a vacation uh, between his sophomore and junior year. While he's out east, he meets this spiritual guide who said to him something like, you know, don't, don't you see that you're poisoning your soul with this success-oriented way of life? Like your idea of happiness is to stay up all night studying for an exam so that you can get a better grade than your best friend. Your, your idea of a good marriage is not to find the woman who will make you whole, but to win the girl that everyone else wants. That's not how people are supposed to live. So give it up. Come join us in an atmosphere where we all share and we all love each other. And this young man had completed four years at a competitive high school to get into Stanford, plus two years of pre-med courses at the university. And that summer, he called his parents from the East and told them that he was not coming home. He was dropping out of school to live in a religious commune. 
Six months later, his parents got a letter from him. Dear mom and dad, I know you weren't happy with the decision I made last summer, but I want to tell you how happy it has made me. For the first time in my life, I'm at peace. There's no competing, no hustling, no trying to get ahead of everyone else. Here, we are all equal and share. This way of life is so much in harmony with the inner essence of my soul that in only six months, I have become the number two disciple in the entire commune. I think I can be number one by June. And you don't know whether to laugh or cry when you hear that because it happens. And that kind of thing happens in churches. We've talked at Blue Oaks about the difference between the kingdom of God, you know, this biblically functioning community, the way that God intended it to be, and the way things generally run in the world, the kingdom of this world. And one of the primary ways that life in the kingdom of God differs from life in the kingdom of this world is that life in the kingdom of this world is built on competition. Life in the kingdom of this world is the constant struggle to be smarter or prettier or richer or stronger than someone else and therefore to be significant. Jesus comes along in the human race and says, life doesn't have to be that way. There's a better way to live. You don't have to do life like that. You can die to all of that. This is a deep part of what it means to die to yourself and to die to this foolish, idiotic, destructive struggle to prove your superiority or your worth. The kingdom of God is made up of people who decide that they want to die to themselves. And then one day, one of them gets this idea, well, maybe I can die to myself better than anyone else. I'll be the deadest person in the whole community. And once again, life becomes this contest. Only now, instead of seeing who's the smartest or the strongest in the game, it's who's this, the most spiritual or who knows the Bible the best or who gives the most money or who holds the record for the most consecutive days without missing devotions or who's the number one monk. Even pastors can play this game. They can get jealous of other pastors. You know, he's convincing more people to die to themselves than I'm convincing people to die to, die to themselves. And that makes me angry. It's not fair. I'd die to convince more people to die to themselves. <laughs> It's, it's crazy, but it happens. And when that happens, it's not the church anymore. No matter how impressive it may look on the outside, it becomes one more little franchise in the kingdom of this world that uses a religious scoring system. It's just one more little franchise in the kingdom of this world. It's not the church. This is what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They decided to sell their land but they're not ready to give it all up. They're not ready to give that money uh, to, the, to the church. They give it some thought and they decide, well, we'll give some of it. They give a fair amount, enough so that everyone would be convinced that they're giving the fair value of their land, but they decide to live a lie. And it's very important that we understand this to get this story. Their decision to deceive the community was not a casual spur of the moment thing. This is not simply the slippage in authenticity that every human being is guilty of from time to time. In verse 9, we're told that this is a deliberate, premeditated act on the part of this husband and wife. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? There was an agreement that happened beforehand. They chose it. 
and embraced it. And if you take a look at verse 3, then you begin to see the seriousness of what's going on. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. There's a very important point that needs to be made here about the church and about uh, this biblical community in the eyes of God. And that is the church and the Holy Spirit are so closely related that when Peter talks about this issue, to say that Ananias lied to the church is to say that he lied to the Holy Spirit. You see, the church, that is you and me, we are a place, we are the place on this earth where the Holy Spirit resides. This kind of identification happens several times in the book of Acts. In Acts 13, 3 and 4, the church at Antioch is commissioning Paul and Barnabas. Luke tells us this. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down. So the church lays hands uh, on them and sends them out. And Luke says that they're being sent out by the Holy Spirit. You see, the relationship between the church and the Holy Spirit is intimately related. To be sent out by the church is to be sent out by the Holy Spirit. To lie to the church is to lie to the Holy Spirit. To wound the church is to wound the Holy Spirit of God. What lies at the heart of the story is not just greed. It's not even simply deception. It's the choice to use the church instead of to serve the church. It's the deliberate choice to violate the bride of Christ and to violate the human beings for whom, for whom Christ died. Ananias and Sapphira decide that instead of being humble members of this community to serve others, they will use this community to serve their own desires for self-exaltation and self-praise. And God will not allow his dream for the human race to be destroyed. He can't. God is committed to the protection of his bride. Look at these other passages. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. You know, a grammatical note here, Paul says you, and he uses the plural form of the word. It means all of you. The church is God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you, the church. God's spirit dwells in you and me as his church, the church is God's dwelling place on earth. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Paul is saying that God's love for the church is fierce, it's holy, it's jealous, it's wonderful because God loves people and people are the church. So if you mess with the church, you mess with God and God is in the business of protecting his church. Now for you and me, this problem has not reached anywhere near the depth that it has for Ananias and Sapphira. But maybe you've made a subtle resolution to deceive the church or to violate the church. Let me just run through a different, uh, the different ways and different forms that it might take. Uh, when I use the church as a tool to further my own ambitions or to showcase my talents, I violate the church. 
When I seek to gain control over others in the church to show how dominant I can be, I violate the church. When I live as a judge over those who lead the church differently than I do, I violate the church. When I pursue truth and when I study the Bible simply to be able to win theological arguments and show others how smart I am, I'm misusing the church of God. When I join a little clique within the church that gossips about or critiques or excludes those outside of my little clique, I'm misusing the church of God. When I subtly seek to let other people know how spiritual I am, I'm missing, misusing the church of God. I think we just need a moment of truth here. We all need a moment of truth periodically in life to own up to what is it that we've done and then to kind of throw ourselves at the mercy and grace of the Father. There comes a moment of truth in this story and these moments come for you and me as well. Today might be one of them. One comes in the story for Sapphira in verse 8. She enters the room and is probably expecting there's going to be a lot of rejoicing because she and her husband had planned out this gift that they'd given to the church. And instead of rejoicing, she gets this strange silence. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Everyone in the room holds their breath for a moment to see what will happen and to see if she'll own up to the truth. If she owns up to the truth, the story would have such a different ending. It would mean life instead of death and grace instead of fear. She refuses to own the truth about who she is and what she's done. She chooses death. In every life, there comes a moment of truth. And I'm going to invite you to have one of those moments with God in a few moments. But this is what comes out of the story. Look at Acts 5.3. And I don't know how to soften this and I wouldn't soften it soften if I could I mean it's simply the word of God then Peter said Ananias how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit it's like Peter is saying here deceit is much bigger than ourselves there is this struggle going on in the spiritual world that the Apostle Paul says his struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the spiritual forces of evil and call it whatever you will. It's light versus darkness. It's good versus evil. It's Satan versus God. It's this spiritual fight that most of us are incapable of understanding. And you and I are the objects of this spiritual battle. And basically it comes down to this. It's truth versus lies. The writer of scripture tells us that God is the father of truth. The writer of scripture also tells us that Satan is the father of lies in John eight forty four. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The writers of scripture make it very clear. God is on one side and Satan is on the other, and they are opposed to one another. There's this spiritual war that rages, and it rages inside every human heart, inside mine and inside yours. It's going on right now spiritual war and it's too important to be trivialized and the battle is won not primarily in dramatic powerful encounters but in quiet unseen moments it's in the choice for submission over self it's in the choice for uh, servanthood over self-promotion in the choice for honesty over deceit in the choice for life over death 
maybe not a sudden dramatic death, but it's about life and death for you and me. And God is calling us. He's pleading with us to choose life, to own the truth about the state of your heart and give up trying to fake it. I heard a story about a 10-year-old boy who died after Halloween. Uh, His name was Timmy. And Timmy died very suddenly, unexpectedly. The family was devastated. But they really were held together by the dad who had such a strong faith. And people commended Timmy's dad for how strong his faith was. Uh, Even at the funeral, Timmy's dad got up and he sang an old hymn called Blessed Assurance. Uh, Maybe you know the song. He got up and he sang that hymn, but he changed the words. He sang, this is Timmy's story. This is Timmy's song, praising his savior all the day long. And a couple of months later, investigations showed that little Timmy had been poisoned in his Halloween candy by his father, who had taken out a life insurance policy on his son. It was devastating to think that that happened. And you know what? For you and me, you may never get caught. And you may cover up your tracks to near perfection. And your life may fool everyone else but it doesn't fool God. Look what the writer of Hebrews says, nothing in all creation can hide from him. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. This is the God whom we must explain all that we have done. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, it makes me think twice about what kind of life I live because God knows. He knows everything about us. Look what the writer of scripture says in Isaiah 29. This is from the New Living Translation. Destruction is certain for those who try to hide their plans from the Lord, who try to keep him in the dark concerning what they do. The Lord can't see us, you say to yourselves. He doesn't know what is going on. How stupid can you be? He is the potter and he is certainly greater than you. You are only the jars he makes. Should the thing that was created say to the one who made it, He didn't make us? Does a jar ever say the potter who made me is stupid? You see, God is not stupid. He knows and he sees. He knows everything. And the reality is we can lie and we can cheat and we can fake our way through life and we can put on a mask and we can show up for church and we can praise God and then we can go back out into the parking lot, get into our cars, take off the mask, and put it in the glove box until the next week and spend the rest of the week kind of living far from God. And we can quench the Holy Spirit who is in us trying to get us to be honest and real. Or you could just take off the mask and throw the stinking thing away. Get honest with God and just let him love you and let him change you. That's what he wants to do. So why not just take off the mask? Just stop pretending. He understands the struggle He already knows it anyway. So why not just get real and cling to him and just let him love you? Maybe you need to come clean with God. Look what 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We come to God to get clean with him And he, in turn, cleans us up. And I just want you to get real honest today. I'm just thinking that it's possible that you might be struggling. Like maybe you're struggling with a drinking problem. And no one knows. 
Your spouse doesn't know, your parents don't know, your friends don't know, but God knows. And he just wants you to come clean and to just let him love you and let him change you. Maybe you're living a lie. Like you're lying to everyone around you about something very serious and no one knows. Your friends don't know, your parents don't know, your spouse doesn't know, but God knows. And he just wants you to come clean and just let him love you, let him change you. Maybe you're struggling with lying at work, you know, falsifying like a little claim here, a little report here, a little report there. No one knows about it. Bosses don't know. Clients don't know. God knows. And he wants you to come clean and he just wants you to let him love you and change you. Maybe there are some websites you you visit or some things you watch and no one knows about it. Your spouse doesn't know, your parents don't know, your girlfriend or boyfriend doesn't know, your closest friends don't know, but God knows. And he just wants you to come to him and come clean and let him love you and let him change you. So how about it? No more pretending, okay? It's a good day when you take off the mask and you stop trying to fool God and you start to respect and love God with all honesty. I think it's interesting that Jesus talks about who is blessed in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Who is blessed? It's the people that are being genuine, that are sincere, but just honest and real, the pure in heart. Because they will do what? They will see God. You know what I've learned? It's really hard to see God when you're wearing a mask. And it would be a remarkable thing today if we all just kind of took off the mask and said, God, I just want to be honest with you. Where do you need to come clean before God? This is that moment of truth that I was talking about earlier. Own up to the truth about who you are before God. I know this is actually called repentance. The word repentance comes from two words. One of them is meta, uh, which means after, and then noia, which means uh, our mind. So repentance has to do with like a new way of thinking. And it's not just a one-time deal. It's a process that we go through for the rest of our lives. It's a process that we're in, whether you decide to follow Jesus uh, two weeks ago, two years ago, or 20 years ago. And so the question I've been reflecting on for the last couple of weeks has been, how do we know we're doing it? What marks a person who is genuinely attempting to change their mind to a new way of thinking? And so I just want to spend the next few few moments reflecting on this. Just real quickly, I want to walk through four marks of a person who is genuinely repentant. How, How can we tell that there's real change happening? And the first mark is a conviction about sin. The writer of scripture says that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. John 16, 8 is an interesting verse. Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, has the Holy Spirit come? Yeah, he did. He, uh, in Acts 2, at Pentecost, we study this in the God I Never Knew series. Now, since we have the Holy Spirit, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to convict us. And this happens in moments of truth when we find ourselves saying things like, I'm not being the friend that I should be. I wasn't totally honest in that conversation. I'm not doing business in the way that's completely honest and honoring to God. I shouldn't have said that about so-and-so behind their back. I cheated on the test. I'm greedy. I'm self-centered. 
when we have those thoughts, that's a good thing. That means the Holy Spirit is convicting us of sin. And it's one of the marks of genuine change or repentance in our lives. And it opens the door to a second mark, which is brokenness over sin. Brokenness is an important part of true repentance. Peter is an example of this. Remember when he was so bold before Jesus, I will never deny you, Lord. I will follow you to the death. And that night, he denied him three times. And when the rooster crowed, what did Peter do? He ran outside and he wept bitterly. He was broken over his sin. When's the last time you were broken over your sin? Maybe you need to pray a prayer and that is, God, break my heart. Allow me to see my sin the way that you see my sin. And once there's been conviction about sin and once there's been brokenness over sin, it will lead to the confession of sin. Confessing our sins to God means that we don't just announce uh, our particular sins to him. Well, I've done this and I've done this. You know, that's not the kind of thing. It means we agree with God about our sins. It means we agree that we have to change our mind about that sin. It's not right. It dishonors God. It dishonors other people. It dishonors my own body. It means we agree with God that this sin is harmful and it costs the life of Jesus who died on the cross to pay for that sin. Now, God knows our motivation when we confess. He knows if we really mean it or not. He knows if we just want to be forgiven to kind of get out of the mess that we're in or if we really agree with him and that we genuinely want this area to change in our lives. So conviction and then brokenness and then confession. And then there's one more important mark of a person who is genuinely changing, turning from their sins, and that is the change itself. Look what John the Baptist said in Matthew 3 8. Prove by the way you live that you have really turned from your sins and turned to God. Do you know what will happen in our lives if we get convicted over our sin and we get broken over our sin and we confess our sin, but we're not very serious about changing our sin? We become distant in our relationship with God. It's the same thing that happens when we have unresolved conflict uh, in a relationship. Um, or unreconciled differences with a person. We become distant in that relationship. We become distant with God. Maybe we're cordial in that we still go to church. We're cordial in that we still serve in the church or we give money to the church, but we're distant because when we get too close to real change, it gets too convicting. And so we keep our distance. You know, churches are famous for being full of people who are distant and cordial with God. Because people who are distant and cordial with God can get away with anything in their lives. And somehow they still feel good about themselves because they still go to church. And you don't want that. Believe me, I know. And so I'm pleading with you. If God brings you to a point of real change in your life, don't say no to God. If you think about it, saying no to God is what got you in the trouble in the first place. Saying no to God is what screwed up your relationship in the first place. Saying no to God is what got you in that relationship that maybe you never should have gotten into in the first place. Saying no to God is what created all those problems and hurts and feelings and misunderstandings. If God has finally brought you to the place where you're ready to change, don't say no. All right, I want to give you some time right now to come clean before God. Let God 
break you and then let them love you and let them change you. Maybe you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know, the area of sin or deceit is very clear in your mind. Well, now you need to allow yourself to be broken over that sin. And after you've been broken, just confess it. Just name it. Just tell God what you've done. And before you leave from wherever you are, make a commitment that you're going to do whatever you need to do to change. All right, let me pray for you. God, I'm so grateful that we have the Holy Spirit in our lives and that you convict us of sin. And specifically, as we're talking about dishonesty today, uh, there are some of us maybe that have areas of our lives where we're being dishonest. And so I pray that your, your Holy Spirit would bring that conviction. You would open our eyes to see our lives the way you see our lives. Help us to see that sin the way that you see it. And God, would you lead us into a time of brokenness? Just like Peter was broken and he wept bitterly. God, if, if that's what we need, I pray that you would bring tears. Help us to, to experience the pain that that sin causes you and other people. Help us to live with that for a moment. And God, I pray that you would lead us into a time of confession where we would just acknowledge that sin before you. And, and God, I know that you, when we bring our sin before you and we confess it to you, you tell us that you forgive it. You wipe the slate clean. Uh, you actually remove the sin from our lives as far as the east is from the west. So I pray that you would do that. Help us to have a clear conscience before you. And then God, I pray that we would make whatever commitments that we need to make to experience change, that true repentance, that we are actually turning from that sin and we're moving in a new direction now. God, would you continue this work that you've begun in our lives right now as we move forward? When I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.